Hi, welcome to another Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. This one will be episode 48 and today I have with me Professor Andy Lane from the University of Wolverhampton. Um, <laughs> I almost slipped that one up. Um, hi Andy, how are you doing? Hi, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing very well. Good. So, um, I'm in really uncharted waters on this one mm-hmm. and it's funny that we got into contact with each other because if there's one thing that I have to say that I probably have to deal with the most in in my own work, whether it's with private clients or with my professional athletes, is the one area that I, I really am not an expert in. But it's probably the biggest thing that I deal with, which is in the realms of uh, psychology, um, habit and behavior yeah. type issues, and it's something that, as whether you're a nutritionist, a personal trainer, a, um, uh, you know, an Olympic uh, athlete coach, you know, you don't know what day that person is going to have. You don't know what letter they've opened. You don't mm. know what email they just received. And and the result of that is just a huge impact on on performance choices, behaviours, and so on. So, um, I have mentioned in uh, in a previous podcast several times. Um, when we're talking about physiology, which is kind of my main angle, particularly nutrition, but all things physiology, performance, exercise, physiology, you, you can't really talk about that stuff when we're talking about human beings without considering psychology. So I haven't got a very um, structured idea as to mm-hmm. how to approach this. So I think we'll we'll, we'll okay. let you uh, we'll let you uh, we'll unleash. The Andy Lane approach to this, but, but why, why, why is it important that us as practitioners should be mindful of of the psychology? I mean, the I mean, a bit more background from me. I I I, just, I listen to your show when I'm running and I'm jogging along, uh, and I'm hearing um, people you know giving advice and various different tips regarding nutrition and training. Uh, and as you're listening to that, um, and and you're thinking, well, you know, that is such a, that's an interesting message, but it almost you're getting goals being given to people to, you know, to change their beliefs regarding and thoughts regarding how they're going to train, what they're going to eat. And they're all psychological concepts. Mm. And whilst they're presented as facts, they are actually, they do require behavioral change. And that, they, I mean, from an academic discipline, an academic perspective, that brings into a whole realm of psychological theories about how they're going to, you know, how they're going to actually be turned into practice. So, from that academic point of view, I'm listening to it. I'm thinking, my God, you really do need more than just a single discipline approach here, because this is about an inter- in- implementation of a different way of thinking, a different way of behaving. And the psychologist, is, and I'm sitting there, well, not jogging quite slowly as I'm listening to this, but I'm, actually, you know, I'm, I'm commenting on it. I'm commenting on it. So it raises thoughts from a, from a multidisciplinary perspective that there's a psychologist needed in the implementation of of all of this and the sort of second part to that is that so many of my um sort of well, most admired physiologists are not brilliant physiologists only because they know lots of physiology mm-hmm. is that their delivery of the message is absolutely fabulous and they're the, they are the best psychologists so when they're trans you know, I, I work with some i work with um, some uh some very good cyclists in the late 90s who I could name drop a few classics here but uh, you know I would see them as part of a multidisciplinary team with a nutritionist and a physiologist and the psycholo- psychologist the uh, the rider would come to me for a, a dose of psychology and I soon picked it up that what they really wanted were their power output scores from the bike test and if you could do anything to change that their credibility amongst their their peer group so they tell their that would be better mm. So if you teamed up with the physiologist who was doing the test and you teamed up with they got the rider beforehand and gave them strategies and tips about how to get a higher score on that bike test, you suddenly had credibility. And so, you know, working with in, in that kind of way where the physiologist is just talking through the mechanics of the, of the process, you know, the, what the bike tests are about to do and what bits of you know, lactate scores and ventilation... Mm. And I'm talking through the perceptions of fatigue that are going to come through that and how you can manage to either turn those down or, or really better still for the higher scores, you know, learn to welcome, embrace them. Um, 
the, the, the rider is getting that message in a really clear way. The physiologist is getting my input into it, and so it doesn't have to do that, but would be doing it anyway, because I've seen the physiologist doing that. So I think it's I think it's important. I mean, I hear I I, I do when I listen to the show. I do get lost a bit in the tech the tech the um, the detail of the sort of biochemistry that comes out. Well, uh, the translation of the message I get fully. Don't worry, Andy. I mean, don't tell anyone, but I get lost too. <laughs> I, I figure, I, you know, it's funny. It's funny how you say that because I would say I mean I'm certainly no rocket scientist. You mm. know, and I, I've been a practitioner a long time and. Lately, I've acquired more academic education and even gotten published now. But for me, if, if I'm being... Well, and part of my own process has been reflective practice. And mm. if I had to pinpoint one particular skill that I've had that I think has made me more successful as a practitioner has actually been my ability to communicate with my clients and and turn complex issues into simpler ones but or dress up test results into something that looks good and none of that is nutrition or physiology these are it's i guess as human beings we we have some sort of skill set in communication which you'd know a lot more than me i mean it, what the written word or the spoken words only a small part of it isn't it and i mm. think i think sometimes they refer to some of these things as soft skills um, as a you know we've all met them there are rocket scientists galore um, especially in the UK we have a really strong um, you know contingent of really talented scientists mm. but they're not necessarily good communicators mm. either as yeah. lecturers or as practitioners mm. so um, I guess if we if, uh, if we have two particular angles we can think about mm. Andy one of which is I guess the really popular topic of weight management which mm. could be multiple podcasts i guess um and performance but maybe mm. if you want to take the lead here as to where we go with this but um um if we could break break down this concept a bit and and maybe uh discuss a few of them and um, give us a clue where we starting with this one then well so if, if so i've mentioned a few things there mm. so we've got this idea of soft skills the mm you know, the ability to communicate information. As I opened up, there mm. are these problems like um, what kind of day a person has had and that will influence perceived exertion. Mm. And, you know, uh, I mean, for us as practitioners who aren't psychologists, mm. um, I mean, how, how are we supposed to deal with this stuff? I mean, one of the things you talked about, which, I th which is... Which is fundamental if you're going through any um, training to be a practitioner in psychology is reflective practice. Um, there's a very good book, and you've, you've just been to Liverpool, John Moores, which Zoe Knowles has done on reflective practice, which is largely written by psychologists. But I think the best chapter is the one at the start by the physiologist Greg White, and, and he's a and, and he is a great example of someone who reflects on what they've done and translates very complex stuff into a very very simple message so within the you know the, uh, the self-regulation I, I guess is the best way to describe it of any practitioner trying to get better at what they do is in thinking about very carefully you know, what went well what could, what went well and describe situations really reflect on you know, how they gave the message and that isn't just the details of the information given but whether the person was ready to receive that that information. Um, what sort of questions did they ask back? Um, how did how do consultancies go in terms of the person really taking away the message that you want them to, to give, and not the message you want them that they want you to hear, and really getting into that consultancy process, and, and which is you know about you know, are people understanding what you're saying? Are they then translating that back into your actions? You know, things like active listening skills, where you encourage the person to to say what you know, to speak clearly and listen to what they're saying, and, and um, rather than feeling that you ought to be telling them um, a certain story. And I know this from the um, one of my many roles is I assess. Um, I must be a British Psychological Society assessor. They're great stage too, and we talk. I read the what the work of trainee psychologists do and they're very good at describing what they've done 
they're not always so good at just reflecting on how on how well it worked and how well m maybe their own emotions influenced the consultancy experience uh, and that which brings it all to bear whether it's going to be any good or not and whether the, the person receiving it will pick up whether the presenter's quite nervous or the presenter's uncertain what they're doing and it's actually okay to be nervous and it's okay to be uncertain but it's not okay to be uncertain and transmit a message that you think it's an absolute disaster because they don't find that very interesting but people will your audience will accept you're a bit nervous providing they think you've got something useful to say at the end of it and it's just it's learning to see yourself as see yourself as a human and see that process a very human experience we're just trying to tell someone a very usually a very simple message and that and that is absolutely key. I was listening to some, some talks this morning, which on the show um, as I went for a jog. And it, the, the simpler the, I mean, I am the, the person who needs the message simply. I listen to the show for often for training tips um, for my own training, and it's I, I can see how how the the person who's not highly trained gets lost in very complicated stuff. You just want you know you said it before. You want to know what to eat. So if I want to eat to lose weight, I want to know what to eat. I want, I want to know, very simply, is, is peanut butter on toast a bad thing to eat before breakfast or is it okay to eat before breakfast? I heard on one, it might have been your podcast, it might have been someone else's, that peanut butter isn't so bad as a ready-made snack because it's not so great on appetite expression. But, you, I mean, that's the sort of thing I want to know. I don't want to know a detailed story about what how many carbohydrates I should be eating. I want, to know, I want to know something simple. I want to be convinced by the person who's saying it, that's a good idea and then to persuade me based on some evidence um, why that should be the case. I think it's, a, I think it's, it's, a, it's around that story and reflecting you know, from the practitioner is to reflect that the whole human nature of the process is that you're speaking to another person mm. and then not picking up the complexity of what you're talking about necessarily. Yeah, it's di yeah, it's difficult. I guess you 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 have to identify who your audience is, don't mm -hmm. you? So, mm -hmm. like for example, for my podcast, my 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 intended audience are mostly um, practitioners and coaches mm -hmm. and um, sports scientists, that sort of thing. Um, and and I do see that in younger practitioners frequently making that mistake of not identifying who their audience are. So mm -hmm. you you see someone who you know they're very good they just got their master's degree for example in sports nutrition and their client walks in who does not have a master's degree in sports nutrition mm. um isn't even interested in uh, mm. the science and like you say it's it's sort of uh, shut up geek just tell me what to eat type scenario mm. but we also have this enthusiasm as practitioners you know for most of us i think we if we if we love what we do and we're passionate I'm very passionate about my field, and it, and I guess you want to show off a bit, don't you? You mm. want to you want to let people look, know. Look what I've learned, but mm. that is a mistake, and I guess we don't always see, you know, it going over people's sort of heads. Um, I mean, there's a place for that, isn't there? Yeah. The academic practitioner has his place to say, "Do you know how clever I am?" at a conference, and the, the I mean. Partly, I mean, I, the, partly, that, and the young academic aspiring one has his place to show, or her has his or her place to show another by the machine gun questions that get fired to try and catch the presenter out. Which you now some of those some of those academic conferences the person presents, and it's like it's like oh my god, they're they're up to be machine gunned down by the questions that are are um, being um, being asked, which is which I think is harsh. I mean, I. But it's also kind of okay in that as you get to that level, you are you know, seen as the you know, you know, someone who is transmitting knowledge at the top level, and therefore it's it's it's, it's not fair game to make someone miserable, but it is fair game to try and find out what's what the the, the message is. But you don't have to do that to someone who's come in to try and go, to try and get better, try and learn something. You don't have to do it with your undergraduates. You don't have to do it with people studying. You, you know, the, you you just want to get help people get better and feel better about themselves and feel more knowledgeable. I mean, I, I mean, on the diet things, on both both parts of performance and losing weight, people kind of know the direct message. They know that you can't go out and eat six McDonald's. They know the they don't know all the parameters, the fine details, but they've got. 
they sort of know that you shouldn't overindulge and they know when they're full and they know when they've eaten to gluttony and they know when they've had the extra ice cream. They're not. They've got good intentions to be able to say, oh, I'll have a pudding, but I won't have, I'll have a, have a, a, I'll have a small ice cream or I'll have this ice cream or I'll have a bit of fruit. But it, the difficulty is put, putting these good intentions into practice. Uh, and it, that is where people fail. And that's where, the, where psychologists come, can come in. And certainly, um, where we've, we've come in is to try and get people into, into A, habits, so that people make decisions good decisions automatically find themselves making the good decision without having to work too hard because people who are gaining weight the idea that it's a self-regulation failure and it's due to pure self poor self-control and they get stressed around the food that they're thinking and that becomes a, a difficult thing in itself is really harsh on the person who you're talking to then they do not want to be overweight they do want to eat much better, but they find it very difficult to act on their good intentions. And it's just finding ways to, to make that much smoother. And it's bringing them into habits. It's, there are some fabulous studies that show that our habits work. There's one in, um, where the, uh, the researcher took people into the cinema and had them in the lab. And the cinema gave them nice, fresh popcorn and stale popcorn. On comes the cinema. Tested at the end how much they liked it. Go on, get in the, in the cinema setting, they all scoff the popcorn and then they measure it how much they've eaten at the end of it, take it away. Do the same thing in the lab, fresh popcorn, old popcorn. People don't eat the, people don't eat the, the old popcorn. That's horrible, tastes horrible. In other words, in the, in the, where, where the um, situation informs this is the habit to do it, you know, there we go, I can steal your context, is correct, <laughs> is, is there. People, the habit kicks in. You get to the cinema, you eat, you eat um, loads of popcorn. People have all sorts of habits that rule their diet, such as, and they're not, they're, and they operate them unconsciously. You get up, you get up, and you eat a large breakfast. is is some people's rule. Um, um, you eat a, lar a large amount of food after training hard is is another person's rule or a habit they've got into. I mean, uh, my wife did her PhD around exercise. Um, people's attitudes towards diet or exercises and the you know, exercise gives you the green light to indulge for many people whose mm. goal is to lose weight and they've got this massive goal clash that operates unconsciously stopping them from achieving their main goal because at the point of finishing exercise this new goal comes in oh i've just achieved something i can now reward myself is actually um, for that period gets in the way of the actual goal of trying to lose weight for exercise yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. But you want you if you can inform someone that's the goal clash. You then they have a chance then to make a choice. Well, maybe I should celebrate that that exercise session differently. Maybe if we're all going into the cafe afterwards, then I should know what the caloric content is of the cafe latte giant fluffy cream thing, and find out that it's seven hundred. Because some of these are massive. Some of these, you know, when you go, what really? It's 600 calories, and you can go, oh, well, not to mean counting, counting calories is the rule, but the, the idea that if the goal is to lose weight, the goal is to lose weight, and if the second goal is to have a social activity, then you can have that social activity with, a, with the black coffee with some, mil with some milk in it. Mm. You still have the social activity. You don't have 700, you don't have the 700 calories that just negated your primary goal. I mean... And, but it's, it's I'm helping people unpack that and know that, you know, that, that they are vulnerable in that situation to act on this new goal, which because they feel they've achieved the first one. Yeah, it's in, you know as you're saying that. Um, well, it's interesting. Firstly, because I had a, uh, a client this morning um, mm. that was going through that very process. Mm. Um, the more exercise they do, the more they ended up rewarding themselves. Yeah. You know, it, it's one of those things. But I, I guess. One thing I recognize in so many of the people that I see is is this sort of business of, you know, they, they walk in and there's that level of guilt and mm. they feel bad about themselves mm. and they, they, you know, and then what, what do we do? We then make it even worse. We go, right, this is banned. That's banned. Mm. Uh, fun is cancelled this year. Um, and, and, and then we and then we make them really focus on it. Mm. I want you to weigh yourself every day, mm. like like they didn't know that they were overweight in the first yeah. place. 
Um, and like and, and yeah, the the things that they enjoy. I mean, I certainly hear that. Well, I was told I can't eat this. I was told I can't mm. drink that. So I've stopped going to restaurants. I've stopped going mm. to. And now they're just sitting at home, depressed, mm. um, hitting the cookie jar um, <laughs> in private. So do you do you feel then that one of the first things that? Well, I don't know if it's one of the first things, but do you feel then that us as practitioners or coaches is we need to stop approaching this from such a negative perspective absolutely i mean the the um, new year's resolution the great time when the gym suddenly gets busy um and the marketing around why you should go and exercise is is often if you don't exercise you're going to pick up these horrible Ill, Ill, horrible death-threatening illnesses and ailments rather than why don't you come why don't you come and do this activity it's gonna be really good fun and we've got these things to go and do at this time the idea that we could get um, um, 50 people um, into the gym at four o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, if we put them on the treadmills to have a walk, to have a walk watching the football match. We're not gonna, you're not going to run. You're just going to sit on the. We've all got the treadmills, all watching the football, on the bikes running, all the different machines, and just walk around the the, the idea that they would be doing that, but instead of sitting down and doing it, they are now act. act. So in other words, you say you create a level of. This is a positive thing to go and do, an enjoyable thing to go and do, um, and it's not seen as something I have. To, you know, the exercises I have to do this, um, and therefore, if you ought to do something, you're not necessarily going to enjoy it. You want to, you know, the idea of of motivation to get people motivated is to make them feel competent. So if you feel okay at doing something, you might want to go back and doing it. If you think it's your own choice. Um, and you're self-determined to do that, then you might want to go and do it again. And if it's done in a social setting where others are doing it, then you've got social norms to say, yeah, this is okay to do this. This is okay to do this. There's every chance that you're going to go back and go to do it. The difficulty comes for many people with, with exercise and diet is, is, is when you make a... You know, the, in, is you put effort into the first set of decisions. Oh, I won't have a pudding today and everyone around you is having a pudding and you go, yeah, look at me, I'm not having a pudding. Well, that's okay while you're fairly strong that's, to this uh, thing. By the way, uh, pudding, uh, that's, a, that's a dessert to our American... Uh, and other oh, is it? Yeah, yeah well, well, everyone knows what a pudding is, Andy. <laughs> uh, yeah, they do. And I was um, and, uh, the, um, on a cruise trip, which a cruise trip, which my wife books, I, would, I call them um, the prison ship because it wasn't for me. Uh, I did mention pudding, and the and the waiter did find it very funny and came back the next night with pudding, and he laughed. His, he he kept laughing the whole trip. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh dear. The um, I mean, you don't. It's it's you know you want to make these choices so you don't feel guilty that you if you have to have to psych yourself up to make them every time. That won't that won't be sustained over a period of time. Absolutely won't be. Um, and you'll get worn down by it, and then the, the point will come as you, you'll cave into the previous habits. Why, mate, getting the habit right is absolutely crucial, and, and getting support from others is really is very crucial. Not and getting the environment right, so it helps you make that decision absolutely as easy as possible. So what? So I've got a. Now that we're talking, there's a few things that are cropping mm. up that I know. I I know a lot of our listeners want to know, and one of them. Um, is since uh, lots of people are themselves or work with people that are involved mm. in something something along the lines of uh, weight management, but mm. I, I'm not talking about um, traditional weight management. I'm talking about uh, people who are, for example, bodybuilders or physique mm. athletes mm. or working with weight-conscious yeah. athletes. And they, they got this thing where they will talk about cheat meals. Mm. Um so you're in this regime of, you know, and it's very structured. You're mm. working towards a certain amount of grams mm. of protein, fats, and carbohydrates and calories, and you're counting it. And mm. you, you've got this idea of saving up. Oh, well, on Friday, I'm going to have a cheat meal. How, mm. I mean, presumably that's, that's sort of a psychological uh, strategy to stick someone in a regime but give them the, the the idea that they do have some freedom in what in what they're doing i mean do you is that a good thing or is that a damaging concept you think what's your thoughts yeah um a cheat meal is to go and eat a bad meal is it yeah like, basically. yeah um the i mean it's an interesting one is it the um the and that the uh, you know i've 
um, worked and trained with athletes who just don't eat that sort of stuff. Mm. Just don't eat that sort of stuff. They've got themselves out of it. And, and those that, who do, you know, will re- do feel that they ought to go back to doing it. So the initial set of beliefs regarding what, you, what food you want, you really want to eat is crucial. So really start identifying, I really want to eat this food or that type of food is the starting point. Um, if there is a degree of denial and building up a frustration about, of, and a feeling that you are being told what you ought to do, then you are releasing that to some point, aren't you? Mm. Uh, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It, it, it typically happens at some point in the process. And I know if we take the boxer Ricky Hatton, um, who classically had that um, release at the end of his contest, but he went very, very slim to very, very fat, very, very quickly. Um, that denial was not helpful to it for his long term. It was not helpful to a long term plan where the idea how do we eat normally? Because you're either under a massive weight restriction to lose weight, or a massive, um, or a massive um, um, overindulgence. Um, so, it, so it's about thinking through what food you want to eat, if it, and and having some control, some control over that, and assessing its effects. Where the effects are one day a week, presumably that's not necessarily going to make a lot of difference. And you can you can build. I mean, the um, you can build that into a program of training, can't you? That mm. it, you build it in that you, if you're going to eat quite a high, if you're going to eat quite a large amount of food of quite high calories, that that might well be not too dissimilar to loading up on calories required to what might be a, a high endurance based session where a large amount of calories might well be functional. Now, many of the weight-making sports will have periods of training um, where they will be reducing their calories and the type of training that comes on from that is affected until beliefs regarding that are sustainable on that they, they do feel strong enough in order to be able to um, cope with that type of intensity. I mean, the beliefs regarding diet amongst people in weight-making sports and beliefs regarding diet amongst the several population can be, mass- can be massively different. And then beliefs within those sports can be massively different. And I'll just give an example. I work with a professional boxer for, who's a very good professional boxer who won the world title. And I got to, he, got, he got to me with his coach. And his coach was, um, was a, actually a student of mine at Brunel at the time. And we talked about weight. And he said, well, he boxed um, at 12 stone. And he, he said he couldn't get any lower than that. And boxers always have the belief that the lighter you are, the better. And we were talking around that. The coach said, I'm not sure you best weight at 12 stone. And he, he said, well, he, you know, he boxed um, in this massively big fight. And he said he really struggled to get to the weight. And he was 12 stones eight the week before. And he was training really hard. And all we said to that is, okay, let's not worry about it. Let's look at, let's look at what you're eating. Let's just look at what you're eating. And we're going to do a food diary, which are inherently problematic. But do expose, well, actually, what, are you eating that much? You're eating that and you're eating that? And re- exploring some beliefs regarding that and the portion sizes. And just to try and talk to him about uh, and make him aware that, you know, this, you know, that just because you train hard, it's very, you know, the classic, you um, it's very, very. You can eat yourself out of a good exercise session very easily. Mm. Um, Don't uh, yourself. Type, yeah. Well, I think we've. Yeah. Uh, well, it is, and it is. You know, it's very, very, very easy to do that. Um, so we, we looked at his diet and we took out a load of the unnecessary calories that he didn't need, and these were, um, uh, you know, the excessive amounts of chips and stuff like that. It was just. It was not a a rocket science stripping down of diet. It was just you know, a lot of these things would be better if we replaced them with with fresher foods, less processed foods and all that sort of stuff. And then we said, well, let's just, let's, let's get the training right so that the training has got the uh, endurance base to start with and we built that up over a period of time and then we looked to building the strength base and the qu- and quality base and fatigue and, and did a whole load of work of programming when he would be sort of really spot on and feeling fresh and sharp for sparring and when he would be really knackered and tra- almost the overtraining principle of when he of repeated bouts of exercise so this really nice cycle and build that in built that in around um uh, built that in around diet as well and you know within three months he's jump he's going to jump on the scales and he's going oh god I'm 11 st- I'm, a, I'm 11 stone 12 done nothing but we've not weighed him we're not going to weigh him we've not done any of his food we've just we've just taken told him that 
also that you know, many of the track and field athletes I've used to work with would never ever get themselves two stone out or over over overweight. They would keep themselves fit and thin all the time, and they would have periods where they might be a bit heavier than others, but they would be fit all the time. It's that that mindset that said we we keep ourselves fit. That once you start going, actually, I'm going to keep myself fit as an athlete. I've got three years left as a boxer. I can de devote three years to that, and that's and that's what I'm going to do. And there may be small periods where I'm not training, but we'll commit to that program. So the lifestyle changes are there. The weight drops down. Um, anyways, coming up to a world title fight, eleven stone eight, and sometimes after training, where we've um, uh, we, we would weigh him at the end of a sweaty hard session. He's 11-4 after one session, and then this coach comes up, who's a coach of a former world title, says, I think you could get to a light medal. And then I, I must have had two weeks of hard work to shift that belief out of his head. Mm. I said, we've come down from 12-4. We've come down 11-10. Most of the time, you are 11-10, 11-9, and you're going to be 11-6. Your 11-6 now you, is easily made. Previously, you described situations where the month of training was all about the weight. Now you're describing training. It's all about the contest. It's all about the tactics. It's all about... You know, going through sparring sessions where we're working on bits of technique, you're not thinking about weight or, or, at all. If you do that, you're back on this cycle. It's all about the weight. The, uh, your, all your mindset will be on the weight. The, the, the difference in your approach to the sport, to yourself, to, your, to how well you compete will be absolutely massive. But he would come back with, but he trained so-and-so, so-and-so, and they made the weight. Look how strong they were. Uh, and the, the coach said... He said, you know, we got so-and-so to lose weight because he used to suck lemons and, that, and the lemon would, the, the acid in the lemon would, would chew away at the fat and that would make them slim. <laughs> but that, these, these, uh, these, would get in, these sort of strange beliefs to, from a scientific point of view carry favour. People mm. would support them and go, yeah, they can do that. And then someone else would say, yeah, well, I, I dropped the weight from there and there and I think you might be able to, you'd be really strong at that. And we, and we had to really work hard to say, no, but we're not thinking about the weight. We're thinking about the quality of training. We are, we've got control of the weight. We've got control of the, what you're feeling totally energized for the sessions. We want you to feel energized um, because we've got a nice cycle of hard training for the endurance part, days of rests. And I mean, things like which you talked about periodization of um, diet. Mm. We talk about you know um, we do you do hard hard you do hard training, refuel that and then in the day's rest trim down the amount of weight the amount of food going in and do some very low intense food low intense training so the idea you're not putting many carbohydrates in it's it's low calorie days it's light very very light training and then moving out of that then going into sparring sessions which would actually have this lovely effect if they go from hard training. Reduce the amount of food, his body weight would crash because he'd be this high cycle of the water would drop out of him, and to get this and he and one of Eric Cummins' beliefs, so we'd weigh him in before one of these better sparring sessions, and he'd be and he'd only be two or three pounds over the weight limit, and he'd done nothing, and he spent two days resting beforehand, but he hadn't spent two days resting and two days of high eating and high drinking, he trimmed it down. He's on this on this almost following. A cycle which which replicated the contest, all in a way that's keeping him very positive, but the belief therefore that he can re that he can get to the weight and get to the weight feeling very very strong was absolutely was absolutely was really strong, but its threats from its from the culture from the beliefs going on in its environment was that was huge because the the context of what's going on is that people saying but you can lose weight like this mm -hmm. and I did and I did and it's. Now, the practitioner goes, and you have to, you have to persuade the person that the, the central goal of that will change altogether, and the mindset and the misery. We did a nice study on, just on that, which, we, which the coach did on, and it was published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, where we took a load of his boxers, good level boxers, and asked them to weigh in well, their normal walking about weight. Um, got all their beliefs, and their beliefs were that they could fight really strongly at their lightweight at their drop down weight we did a performance test which we simulated like a, bo a boxing which is sit ups and press ups and squats 
and they did that. Uh, and then we asked them to do it one week. Then the next week, we got them to do it at their competition weight, having dried out. Massive difference in performance and an even massive, huge difference in their mindset, their mood. They were depressed. They were down. They were angry. They lacked energy. But at the same time, they carried beliefs that this is the best way to go. But everything else was saying, not that isn't the case. Your, your performance is worse. It's the same exercise feels ultimately harder. But you're, in a, you're in a sport yeah, the, where, the where the chance that um, dropping your weight, performing badly, feeling very fatigued is going to be positively reinforced is high because your opponent has done it worse. Yeah. And so you win a contest in this condition, it gets positively reinforced and in a culture which also positively reinforces it. I think what we had at that time was a massive advantage over our opponents. Because we, we took our boxers in there, trained against their tactics, no issues at all about their weight. They knew they were going to step on the scales, right? And at the time of the contest, they were at, the, they, they were at their weight, having been through a diet, through, through nutri nutritional program and mental skills program that meant that they were totally comfortable in how they're going to feel because they'd reproduced it lots and lots of times before. Massive difference, absolutely massive difference to what it is normally. So you, you, you raised um, a, a comment there, which is something that we all have to deal with, um, which is this concept of a myth. And a mm. myth, the, a myth is, man, is that a powerful thing? Mm. And, and it's interesting because some, you know, and by myths, I mean, um, so from, from my perspective, we're trying to work with an evidence base. Uh, mm. uh, 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 you're working through a hierarchy of scientific evidence to, mm. you know, to justify the advice and recommendations mm. that I'm giving. But sometimes that's just not very sexy. So no. there's no buy-in because they don't understand the science. So how mm. can you expect them to, to get what you're talking about? And uh, you can throw bits of you know, journals at them. But they don't really care. Whereas the myth is so well packaged and so easy mm. to deliver. It, it's almost like an uphill struggle. And sometimes, I mean, these things are difficult to see, like pseudoscience or mm. what some people call bro science. I mean, I, I, I mean, I'll stick my hand up. I was well into that stuff in my early career mm. uh, without even knowing it. Um, what, I mean, what advice do you have for us when it comes to, you know, fighting that mighty foe, the myth? Yeah, the um, it's difficult to know what the myth is, isn't it? And you, the yeah. the the, the, um, the you know, your show on the pat the 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 effects of the placebo is yeah. is influential in that. And I'm mean, interested in Chris Beedy, who's who I've worked with a lot. Actually, he's one of my he was one of my PhD students, <laughs> which is great to see him mention. But the, I mean that that is exactly it. Where something is packaged and it's absolutely believed. Um, it's going to have a powerful impact on what people do. Mm. It's difficult to know whether that's a myth or not in t in, with the evidence which people have got. And, you know, what, what most of my f running friends now are, are, are beetroot juicing themselves up. <laughs> <laughs> beetroot Careful, juicing I get, themselves I got up. Professor Andy Jones is coming on soon. Beetroot juicing themselves up. And then they say to me, is it meant to turn your poo bread? I said, oh, <laughs> is it just? Is it just? I said, that, that proves it's going to work. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the, but the, and some people say, I took it, it doesn't work. And it's almost at the point, their beliefs, which as they point, they take it, and whether they're sceptic or favourable, will determine the outcome. Mm -hmm. And they will search out what the outcome is likely to be. Um, what people need to do is that there's, in, there's massive individual variation in a lot of these things because um, partly because people are different and partly because you know, the susceptibility to some of these interventions is, is different, um, different to based on either whether they, how they've slept, what mood they're in, what they've eaten and so on. There's lots of possible contributing factors which we don't know. But what, people, what every individual can do and what sports can do is get really good ways to test the effectiveness of these things is to set themselves up as, as case studies and record under control conditions as best they can, does this thing work? And look for multiple baseline measures of what my performance is like now against multiple baseline measures of what my performance is like 
after the intervention write down the um, you know you can if you're doing you know, you've got if you're doing weight rating weights now you usually you want dependent measures that are not susceptible to self report you know not like not only or not self report like many psychologists are I think I perform better now you want to know whether you have performed better you are stronger you are lighter and so on and have those but also have some of your beliefs regarding that and that can be simply just write down what you think write it down what you think and you can store it away and then you can come back like you look at your draining diary and go oh that seemed to work and then if you unpack to have a look at the note you made at the side of it and whether your beliefs were strong at that time because they will evolve and over time a new a new product will come along and and you'll think that's the one to go for possibly particularly um, not the academic side but the non-academic side will pick up and go we're taking that this week um, this is this uh, then they will take beliefs in that I don't know in when I did triathlon in the late 1980s everybody was using L-carnitine yeah. L-carnitine oh L-carnitine and not what L-carnitine sounded like dog food to me but it was um, they, they're all taking l and they, they would be buying this stuff off off mail order because the internet didn't exist in the late 80s and and then telling everyone how much quicker they've got having taken some and you just and it's and there is you know massive belief effect i've not seen the effects of l-carnitine um since um i've not seen it since i mean as an undergraduate in my third year just as an aside to that i took must have taken part in about eight or nine studies for my colleagues various vo2 max tests where i took bicarbonate of soda phosphate caffeine and and repeated in different studies on bikes i didn't mind doing all the studies it was quite interesting to whether it was placebo or you know whether it was and so on and the you get an idea of whether you're going to respond to these things or or not um or whether you'd like to respond to them i think is the is more of the story and i think you would it's quite nice to want to respond to something and have the magic thing in your the magic um pack the magic um bullet in your pack which actually works and one of the advice i give people with you know doing marathons um is is if you if if you take a gel and you think a gel works for you then it probably will and if you know that this thing gives you energy then save up the magic bullet for the point you feel most tired and stick it in and if you've tried that in training and you feel that it does and you've got and you've got strong beliefs and you've got evidence to show that it works in terms of your training and having that on your waistband on the day of the run is your extra bit of support, isn't it? It's your extra bit of support which is going to dig you out of a big hole. And that's, so that's, I mean, that, if that might be a self-fulfilling prophecy because there might not be a biological agent in the, in, the, um, in the gel that acts quickly enough. But that isn't, again, necessarily the case because we've, you know, we've seen in other, in, in other bits of research where non-sugar um, triggers, it triggers them, sends a message to the brain that sugar is coming and therefore we will release energy into the system. So it might well, might not be the biological process it's meant to, but it might operate via a different biological process which is not actually fully understood at the present time. Either way, the effect is you go quicker and you believe it's going to go quicker. And on the point of believing it's going to go quick, um, quicker, commit to the plan of de- delivering a better performance. And that in itself is a is an intervention, isn't it? It's a powerful Absolutely. intervention. Absolutely. It's yeah. much better than, you know, we can get someone to shout at the side, come on, well done. But if within your mind that knowing you take um, one of these gels at 17 miles and that's going to get you through to 26, then that is a very, very powerful thing to have. And knowing that it works is even better. Absolutely even better. No, no. And whether, yeah. whether, the, whether it's the gel or whether it's to put some, eye, some earphones on, or whether it's um, in the case of um, the, the London Marathon where the, the crowd picks people up over the last few miles, they get roared into the finish and that has an effect to, to increase arousal, to reduce sensations of pain. Is, you know, there's all different sorts of mechanisms which could explain that, but they're all operating towards the same goal. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, there are so many things that come from this and the power of belief and I mean yes you know I, I did a whole podcast with Dr. Mayor Ranchudas all about placebos and nocebos fascinating stuff mm. um, so um, what, one thing I did want to talk to you about was this this thing that we 
everyone that's listening, either personally or professionally, will deal with mm. this. And, and there's this thing which is that um, biochemically, nutritionally, mm. energy balance, whatever, we can explain um, fundamentally how you lose weight or gain weight. But mm. in the real world, it's bloody difficult. Mm. So why is losing weight so difficult? Oh, well, ask you me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean... I don't mean I don't mean from a nutritional or biochemical perspective, but psychologically, why 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 do we struggle to, you know, like for example, someone can stick to a diet for maybe two days, but you know, two months is a whole different ball game. Mm. Yeah, the um, the sticking to the, the sticking to the diet or that becomes your diet a different um, is is a different way of thinking, isn't it? Mm. The accepting that you you've got to eat this. You know, you've got to eat this way and then learning to find things you enjoy from it and therefore getting to the habit of what you're going to be doing um, is, fundam- is fundamental to that. When you, when you feel you ought to be sticking to something diet, it's effortful. And if it's effortful and, you've, and you are being regulated by something else, it's very good. It's, very, it's broken. It's, it's asking to fail, isn't it? It's asking you to flip off, flip, um, you know, um, to break from it. You, the, the idea is to take ownership of these things so that the, uh, which sounds all a bit too easy, the, is that you, you're, you know, if you have to re- reduce the amount of calories you've gonna, you're going to intake, you've got to do that thereafter. You're going to have to make a choice to w- of where that's going to come from. I don't think it's not, it's the, the, I mean, the, there's getting the fundamental belief and attitude around that so that's going to happen is one point. The rest is then getting some strategies in there to help you as you step off the the straight and narrow, if that's where putting it, is to is to put you back on the straight and narrow. And dealing with lapses is massively important. And but part of that is accepting lapses are going to occur. Do you mean so, falling off the wagon? Falling off the wagon, okay. and it's okay yeah. to fall off the wagon. But it's yeah. and that's absolutely normal. It's what you do as you've fallen off mm. that determines what happens next. Uh, one of the very, very simple but highly efficient and, ve- and highly evidence-based interventions is something called implementation intentions, which sounds very clever because I thought I'd sound very clever, but it actually translates itself to an if-then plan. And the if part are all the things like if I eat six bars of chocolates, if, was it, um, if I eat too many packets of crisps or if I have go, if I go go on a Saturday night and um, I end up in the curry house and when the waiter says two poppadoms I meant to say two and ten came out and but they were nice <laughs> sort of thing as and as people slip off and they, they 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 had good intention to act in this way and it slipped out um, is all well and good and so you put down all the ifs where you are susceptible to those sorts of um, um, bad decisions or the decisions you actually feel guilty about and so you've got if and if there's several ifs not too many and then you put a then to it so if i if this happens if there is an option of a cake versus a banana you say if then then you then you then you'll remind yourself that the long-term goal is to lose weight and to think of yourself standing if you're an athlete standing in the boxing ring at the right at the right weight, looking really slim if that's your if that's your long-term goal or if you're uh, bodybuilder to think through the the time where you're going to be you know think through the week before competition when you're really nervous and you're worried that you're not slimming so you might want to trigger it through through those sorts of things or think through how you want to look in the summer and think through how and so you think through that the ideal scenario you create an image of something that you want to be the ideal goal the, the, the straight the most important goal that's going on and remind yourself of that as the clash comes in and what that should do is that is that the point where you're about to make a bad decision, you you within your mind, you're reminded of all those, of of, of you're reminded of those times when you sat on New Year's Day making all these grand intentions, mm. and you're back into that situation where you feel quite powerful in those ability to um, enact those difficult decisions. So it helps people to make the best decisions most of the times. And there's lots of evidence that people have been very helpful in weight in weight management choices that they make much better choices more often when they follow it and they use if then planning. If then planning, interestingly, doesn't always work, but what it does do, it brings the information to mind when the if part presents itself. So if I feel tired after 17 miles, then I'll say to myself, 
and then you need the then part to be something that is really useful to you. So there's no point getting to the end of the marathon looking down and going, ah, those were those gels I should have had. The if part would have been triggered in if said, if at 17 miles I feel really tired, then I'll reach for my gel. That would, one would trigger the other. Or so if I feel tired at 17 miles, then I'll tell myself it's just all about getting into the rhythm and then start counting a rhythm. That would be another strategy that you could use. Or as if, third one for the marathon, if I feel really, diff, really tired at 17 miles, then I will sink in, then I'll look at the legs of the person in front of me and pretend they're running my legs for me, which is the, would be a third one. So you, know, you all get all sorts of different strategies to actually try and bring yourself into some, in a way of coping with the situation that you're in so that you act in a way that is consistent with, the, with your central, your really important, overarching, most important goal. If you, which you need to, which you need to identify what that is, and it, and just when you fall off, just accept, yeah, I fell off. That's fine. I'll fall off. I'll get back on again, mm. and don't beat yourself up out about it. Don't get all, I mean, you, which you will, but accept that the guilt you feel for being miserable is um, because the goal is important. Yeah, and and just tell you know the mo emotions are friend are. Um, are, um, I'm rolling my I've got a sore foot so I'm just rolling it with a ball hmm. that's what's going on but unbelief um, emotions will tell us a signal and that's really important part of the whole this whole process I'm glad we've got to is that the importance of trying to learn you, what your emotions are telling you they invade your mind and tell you a powerful message and that can be pleasant and unpleasant um, and if you look at the sort of evolutionary basis of emotions and some really nice work by a, a uh, an evolutionary psychologist called Randolph Ness which is Quite, a, quite an amusing name when when his first name sh um, is shortened. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, my colleagues tell me off of being childish on those things, but it, it does raise a smirk. Um, but there's lots of um, the idea that all emotions are functional or adaptive, and the idea that emotions would have been phased out of the human psyche if they were somewhat dysfunctional, and the idea that that's that um, depression is functional because it signals you to conserve resources and there may be lots of situations where conserving resources is important and in, um, in evolutionary speaking the idea to, of keeping still, keeping quiet, conserving resources might be very useful in a famine where there's not much food around you, where the route to gathering food is going out and picking it up so being miserable and not doing anything is, is, is adaptive yeah. equally being anxious and having a big tiger in front of you and that's telling you that the tiger's in front of you. Now, now we've got to prioritise all our thoughts on that threat is absolutely adaptive. And it's the, what the anxiety is doing is triggering all your systems to actually either run away or run or fight it. I would run away. Um, anger is a similar f um, physiological function. It's telling you that, that your goal is being frustrated. Your, 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 um, it's telling you that you're frustrated about not achieving your goal. Guilt is telling you that was that was important, and it, you you have underlying beliefs about something went in there that wasn't as good as it ought to be, and therefore a reflection on that is 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 worth doing. And sometimes it's reflection, and, and it, it, it's hard truths about yourself that you didn't train hard enough. And other times it's that you're you're um, that you're just too hard on yourself. I mean. And people are really hard on themselves. And a, a great intervention is to get, it's a simple one, another really, really simple one, is to get someone to train with someone else as their coach. Uh, in running, we get people to run as pacers, and, they, and they, when they're running in pacers, just to talk to them. And then when they're talking to someone else and they're running along, they're usually very positive. And so when you say to them, well, what do you say to them? I told them, oh, just to keep going, chip away up the hill or they're doing weight training. Oh, you can get one more rep out of this. Just squeeze it in. Remember, image yourself pushing it up and try and get as most of it out of you can. I say, that's fine. Do you, when you do that, when you train yourself, what's your narrative like to yourself? And they'll say, it's nothing like that. When I'm up the hill, I'm going slower. I absolutely beast myself and I berate myself and I can't push up the final rate. I call myself all sorts of expletives. Um, I say, well, why don't you do that to why don't you do that to someone else? Well, because well, you could you don't do it to someone else. Well, I say, why do you do it to yourself then? Hmm. It's okay to feel bad about performance because you set the standard so high, but maybe you set the standard so high that you're never going to achieve it. But where you do get is really close to something is absolutely fabulous, and at some point you might choose to accept that that's absolutely brilliant. 
but at the but at the time your goals are much higher but you gave it as best you can you're fully engaged about what you're going to doing and look at i mean some of the work that was done for our olympic athletes was all about that it's just taking off the idea that you need to be the olympic champion rather than saying you just need to be the best as best as you can today you re you repeat that as best as you can today and you'll get fairly close to what is required to be the olympic champion and if you do do as best as you can today and everyone else is and everyone else is trying to play the occasion not the game your chances improve even better and so you start giving people permission to be nice to themselves um, Yes, they can dream about the very, very impossible goal, and that's absolutely fabulous. But at the same time, getting close to it, having the A, B, C, and D goal regarding what that is, 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 is also absolutely fundamental. Um, and the most difficult bit of people trying to lose weight is that they don't give themselves, they beat themselves up for failing, and they don't look at making permanent changes in what they're doing. The first point for most people is stop gaining weight, actually. And in the process of a diet, they've got to the point where they want to lose weight, but they're actually on a trajectory of gaining weight. And the idea that if they could spend three months at the same weight, that's a success. But that's not a success to the person who's decided to go on a diet, who's trying to stop, an, stop a juggernaut going forward in one direction. And actually, they've got all... I mean, there's so many minor habits that get in there that need challenging and breaking that it's really difficult to actually get into well, to try and out work out what is the trigger for someone as to why they're putting on weight and for them to be aware of what they're doing. Um, it's, it's largely behavioural. They're either, you know, if, you, if you treat it as behavioural and teach it as things under your control, then you have a chance of doing something about it. And it's, you, know, you put the food in and you do, and if, if you're not in control of what the food that goes in there, then you you kind of need to be to some degree, don't you? I think when I, the, I know from my own perspective, um, when I got to the a, the first age, I'm nearly at the second age where it's unmentionable, but the first unmentionable age, um, 30 is quite old, the next unmentionable age is an unmentionable one. It's I was 15 kilos heavier than I am now. I thought, this is outrageous. This is outrageous. I was exercising quite a lot. Mm. This, I mean, this is absolutely outrageous. And I, so I took a look at my diet and said, well, you've got to change something. You've got to eat less portions. The diet from what that is then to what it is now is absolutely massive. The, the effort it took at the start took a little bit, of, quite a lot of reflection, identification of what was doing wrong. The, the effort it takes now to, to, to sustain that um, weight is none because yeah. it's now habit it's habit and it's learning that you don't you know you don't you eat when you're hungry and there's just lots of habits you get into which help which help you through the process so wow that, there's so much stuff there and i got on one then didn't I? oh you did you did you did <laughs> it was great i the thing i like i really liked that concept of, of you know you've got permission to be nice to yourself and I think that I, I'm pretty sure every listener will identify with that one. Um, so maybe we'll have to explore that on another podcast because we're uh, uh, pushing the boundaries of, of time uh -huh. on this one. So um, we'll, we'll, I, we'll, I don't mind your podcast could go to an hour to me because I do like a so I actually run for it's about forty eight minutes and then I have to run in silence for the last. Well, 10 there minutes. you go. We'll I, try our, we'll try our three hour and. 30-minute one for the marathon. They're okay as well. They're, they're okay. okay. We'll, have, we'll have versions for people in the gym, people uh, 5K, a 10K, and a triathlon podcast series. It's got to be a slow jog. Yeah, okay. Because you, we'll you've got to be able to... really slowly then. No, no, no. Because you've got to be able to listen to what's going on. Ah, there's, okay. There's a whole, there's whole theory of why you can't listen to something else when you're under hard, intense exercise. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Well, that's definitely another subject. Um, listen, um, thank you for your time, Andy. It's been thank fascinating you. to discuss this with you. I suspect we're going to have to get you back on because I thought of all kinds of different topics uh, when we went into that. But for folks that want to learn a bit more about you, I know you have a, um, a website, which is winninglane.com, W-I-N-N-I-N-G-L-A-N-E, obviously um, playing with your name there. Um, <laughs> they can learn more about your um, academic uh, situation um, at the University of Wolverhampton. Mm -hmm. That's probably all linked by your website, isn't it? So, uh, yeah, it, yes, 
not the walls one doesn't link out that too well. The, right. the website's more personal, but the, 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 I mean, for all the academic areas of studies, PhDs, MSCs, etc., they should go to walls. And okay. um, um, my track record of PhD students is, you know, many have gone on to great things. Brilliant. Chris Beedy being one of them, just yeah. as a as a selling point for He's anyone. He's been immortalised already on this podcast. He has <laughs> been. You should get him on as well. He's very yeah. No, well, I do. Well, I mean, I'm interested <laughs> in, in lots of things yeah. that you've discussed and it's not talked about enough so we'll definitely do that as well as the need to refer to psychologists and um, behavioral therapists and so on but anyway look that brings us to the end of this uh, we do science guru performance podcast um, once again thank you andy for your time and um, you can learn more about uh, uh, this podcast and other podcasts at guruperformance.com and I, of course, am Laurel Bannock, and we'll bring another podcast back to you very soon.